The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. God does not use mushrooms in His work. He uses oak trees. You can grow a mushroom in a night, but it takes years to make an oak. Paul was seasoned in the desert of Arabia, and then for 14 years he worked in the back country of Syria and Cilicia. There were no special mass meetings with headlines, persecutor turns preacher. For the 17 years of his seasoning, all that the Jerusalem believers knew about him was that he was somewhere in the Gentile country. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Building of an Apostle. We live in a day of instant celebrities, whether it be in sports, politics, or entertainment. As soon as you're a celebrity, you were suddenly an expert on a variety of subjects, and people are seeking your opinion. But is this how God does His work? Stay with us as we begin to get a glimpse of how God builds His church. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, it's Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 15 through Galatians 2 and verse 8. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Building of an Apostle. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How we thank thee for thy great faithfulness. Once more we worship Thee because Thou alone art God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask Thee that in this hour Thou shalt use every part of the going forth of this word that it may reach our hearts and bring blessing. And we give Thee the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We continue in our study of Galatians. Last week we took up the first 12 verses of this epistle and saw that those early Christians had been turned aside from the gospel of grace to a gospel of legalism. We closed with Paul's explanation that he received the gospel not from man, but by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let us turn to first chapter and verses 15 and 16, where we read, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now here's the outline of Paul's own experience. His salvation began with God. He was saved by God's sovereign grace and good pleasure. 
God separated Paul from his mother's womb, and on the Damascus road, God revealed Christ to him. Then Paul was immediately transferred out of his relationship to God under the old covenant into a new relationship with God in the church under the new covenant. We must not think that what happened on the Damascus road was salvation in the sense that we know it now when a pagan in the heart of Africa comes to Christ, but rather the transfer of someone who believed in the way that Isaiah and John the Baptist believed into a believer who believed in the New Testament sense as all of those in the New Testament finally came to believe. In verse 16 we read, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. When one knows that he has met Christ and that Christ has revealed himself, it is not necessary to go to men for teaching. Though we may have great blessing from men, the final blessing comes from the Holy Spirit who reveals truth in line with the Word of God in such a way that there is objective certainty and subjective assurance. Outside is the rock Christ Jesus, and inside is new life, which is also Christ Jesus. And so here is the basis of all true knowledge. Whether within or without, it is Christ Jesus. Now, after Paul had seen the Lord, he did not go to Jerusalem and take a course under Peter in the life and teachings of Jesus. He went into Arabia, the desert, and there the Lord taught him. There is no word about this in the Bible, so no one knows what happened between Paul and the Lord out in the desert in Arabia. We do know that at some time between Christ's making himself known to Paul and his return to Jerusalem 17 years later, God had made known to the apostle all the great truths that we find in his epistles. Verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles I saw none, save James the Lord's brother, now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Paul is very emphatic here because he wants to establish in the minds of his readers and in our minds that he did not receive his doctrines from any man. He had not sat at the feet of some other disciple and absorbed his teaching. He had been taught by God alone. The originator of Paul's religion is the Holy Spirit. His doctrines are rooted in the teachings of the Lord Jesus and in the Old Testament. Paul did not originate anything. He was the channel of divine revelation. When Paul visited Jerusalem the first time, he saw only two of the leading brethren, Peter and James, the Lord's brother, a son of the Virgin Mary by Joseph. We find no foundation in the Bible for the belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin. For the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. One of the great prophecies of the Old Testament spells this out with great clarity. In Psalm 69, 8 and 9, we read, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Mary was a good and faithful wife to Joseph and should be an example to all Christian women and she bore him a large family of children. 
In the Gospels, we read the names of four of Jesus' half-brothers, and it speaks of his half-sisters in the plural, so there were at least two. Thus, the Virgin Mary became the wife Mary and bore Joseph at least six children. In speaking about these matters, Paul calls God to witness that he is telling the truth. He says, before God, I lie not. Now we turn to verse 21 to 24. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed and they glorified God in me. What a startling phrase, Paul the unknown. Many people imagine that after meeting Christ on the Damascus road, Paul began preaching immediately and was writing his epistles within a few days. As a matter of fact, the process of training him was a slow one. God called him, God revealed Christ to him, and then God taught him. God does not use mushrooms in his work. He uses oak trees. You can grow a mushroom in a night, but it takes years to make an oak. Paul was seasoned in the desert of Arabia, and then for 14 years he worked in the back country of Syria and Cilicia. There were no special mass meetings with headlines, persecutor turns preacher, come and hear the former killer tell his story. There was never any publicizing of the gory details of his persecutions of Christians. Paul mentions his former life with tears because he persecuted not Christians, but Christ. For the 17 years of his seasoning, all that the Jerusalem believers knew about him was that he was somewhere in the Gentile country. Oh, what a lesson is here for young preachers. What a revelation of the ways of God. A person who has recently been saved should never be advanced to a place of prominence. However, a man may be a seasoned Christian, even though young in years. For Paul told Timothy that no one was to despise his youth. Paul's experience should be a great example to the church. Publicizing past sin may draw crowds and bring glory to the preacher, but it will never bring glory to God. Down in Jerusalem, the memory of the persecutions soon died out, and the rumor went around that the old persecutor was now preaching the gospel. It was all far away and long ago. I detect a note of condescension in the voices of the leaders. They glorified God in me. With a little piety, well, well, yes, yes, isn't it nice? He's saved, thank God. And now we begin chapter 2, reading verses 1 and 2. Then, fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation, and I communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. The first great doctrinal struggle in the history of Christianity was about to begin. Because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the form and ceremony of the Old Testament had ceased to be divine commandments and had become only what is called here the Jews' religion. God's time had now come for Paul to take the lead so that the truth of divine grace might be established. 
Paul did not run ahead of God. Now, his natural bent, as would be the natural bent of any man, would have been to go to Jerusalem and confound lesser minds with his knowledge and his truth. But he waited on God. He said, I did not plan this myself. It was God himself who brought me to Jerusalem. When God thrusts a man forward, there will be certain blessing. When man runs ahead of God, there can be only failure and a blot on God's honor before the world. Paul did not go to Jerusalem in order to learn from Peter or from any of the other disciples. He did not go to learn but to teach. Peter was not the teacher. Paul taught Peter. Paul did not fear lest he himself be mistaken, but he was afraid that Peter and the elders of the church in Jerusalem had slipped back into Judaism and that they would refuse the doctrine of the whole grace of God. If so, they would block the divine plan to establish the true church on the doctrine of grace alone. Now note also that arriving in Jerusalem, Paul went directly to the leaders of the church. Sometimes evangelists go into a town and arrange campaigns without consulting with the ministerial association. Then, when they are not supported as they think they should be, they hurl epithets at true believers and accuse them of not following the will of the Lord. But when Paul went to Jerusalem, he first stopped by the offices of the ministerial association, we might say. Paul was not a separatist. He had a deep love for these men, and this journey to Jerusalem was for the express purpose of working with them. If you like, you may say that Paul sought to work under the auspices of the organized church. Verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. There was no compromise on Paul's part with regard to ritual and its place. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile, was now a believer and Paul's helper. The crux of the problem was centered in this young, uncircumcised Greek Christian. Would he be segregated or integrated? On a matter like this, Paul would never give ground. Fellowship among believers must be on the basis of fellowship with the Lord. If a man is saved, we must fellowship with him, no matter what our differences on matters of ritual. Paul would never have tolerated closed communion. To force circumcision upon Titus would be the same as to force a particular form of communion or a particular mode of baptism upon a true child of God. Oh, how Paul cries out in triumph over this victory. The men who had come to Galatia preaching false doctrines had claimed authority from Jerusalem, and now Jerusalem decides for the truth and the leaders are obedient to the Holy Spirit. There were no rules drawn up as conditions for church membership. The young, uncircumcised Greek was accepted on the basis of salvation by grace alone. Now verses 4 and 5 read, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
Now these spies who had slipped into the meeting of the leaders were not true believers in Christ. They were not ignorant or untaught Christians or even Christians who had gone off on some tangent of error. They were men who wanted to make salvation contingent upon the keeping of their set of rules. They were under the curse which had been pronounced by the Holy Spirit as we have seen in chapter 1 and verse 9. They were preaching another gospel which was not the true gospel at all. As in that day, so in our day. There are those who insist that everyone agree with their pet doctrines and abide by their favorite rules. But the Holy Spirit cannot use a man who seeks to maintain his own system of doctrine. For God will never permit that a man interfere in a work that belongs to God alone. And once more, Paul cries out in triumph. We did not give place to these men for a moment he cries. We maintained our cause with the true brethren in spite of the false brethren. This was so in order that the truth of the gospel might remain with you, with us, all the way down to the 20th century. Now, what was the truth of the gospel that Paul was maintaining? The virgin birth? No. The blood atonement? No. The inspiration of the scriptures? No. Both Paul and his opponents believed all these things. There was no controversy in these areas. The truth of the gospel was that the Christian life is the life of the heart. No man can be saved, and no saved man can be made holy by keeping the law or by observing a list of don'ts. The Christian life is the possession of the whole being by the Holy Spirit. We are to be dominated by him. We are to be brought to holiness of life by his life in us. The failure of these men to realize this great fact was sufficient for Paul to call them false brethren and to oppose them with all the intellectual and spiritual powers that God had given him. Now in verse 6 we read, But of those who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, the men referred to here were not the false brethren of verse 4, but the true leaders, the really big men of the Jerusalem church. They seemed to be somewhat. It's humorous, perhaps, that in English, the initials are SS, seemed somewhat. For such a pair of initials today might be DD. Oh, do not misunderstand. Education and honors are often used by God. However, it is not by man's mind that the souls of men can be reached, but only through the Holy Spirit. If we ask what men in the Bible were the most used by God, we might well say they were Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New. Second, if we ask which men had the greatest education, the answer would be the same, Moses and Paul. And we would even discover that the education of each was a pagan education. Moses in Pharaoh's court, and Paul in the Greek philosophy of Tarsus, and a year of graduate work with Christ rejecting Gamaliel. But Paul had been willing to become nothing, while the leaders of the Jerusalem church seemed to be somewhat. But in matters pertaining to doctrine, the apostles had nothing to add to what had been given to Paul by the Holy Spirit in Arabia.
None of the disciples had mind, intellect, or zeal to equal Paul's, but it was not for this reason that they did not modify his doctrine in any point. The reason for the finality of Paul's point of view is revealed in the first chapter, my gospel is not according to man. The leaders in Jerusalem felt this and thus kept their hands off God's work and God's glory. Now in verses 7 and 8, we continue. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. The Jerusalem disciples and Paul both saw clearly that the gospel was one and the same for all men, for Jew and Gentile alike. But they realized that the Holy Spirit had given to them the work of ministering to the Jews and that Paul was to minister to the Gentile. The gospel was the same. There never has been any other gospel. Now when we make a comparison between these two groups, so far as God's dealings with them in salvation are concerned, there is a striking similarity in their needs and his provision. The Gentiles were sinners without the law. The Jews were sinners by the law. And again, when the Lord Jesus came into the world, it was announced that his name would be called Jesus, for he would save his people, Israel, from their sins. And in Luke 2, when the announcement of his birth came, he said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. No Israelite was ever saved through the law, but only because of the Lamb. Even Moses was saved, not because he kept the Ten Commandments, but because his brother Aaron killed the lamb and shed its blood for him. The lambs that were offered in the tabernacle and the temple were types of the Lamb of God whom John the Baptist announced when he pointed to Jesus and cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his epistles, Paul furthers the similarity, speaking of Christ as our Passover, sacrificed for us. And thus we see the reason why the great invitation of the gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. For Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now in our study next week, we go on from here and shall consider the importance of free grace and the liberty which is ours in the gospel, revealed in the second chapter of Galatians. We shall see how Paul emphatically sets forth this truth in his strong rebuke to Peter. This is one of the key passages of the New Testament, and I trust that you will be with us. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless this truth to each listening heart, and that thou shalt use it to thy glory and our strengthening. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
God's perfect lamb was given not just for Israel, but for all people. Can you say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believeth. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, The Building of an Apostle. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Building of an Apostle, or simply ask for message number Q106. We'd also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who might be going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. You may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insights and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.